Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for the Sabbath that is upon us and for the promise of a special blessing today. Lord, we come expecting great things because we know that you're a great God. And please, Lord, would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us tonight as we open your word Help us to put aside our own pre-opinionated ideas concerning this message. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us by your Spirit what is truth. That's all we want, dear God. We want to know what truth is so that we can follow it. So please be with us, dear God, tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would give me a strong voice and that you would give all of us a mind that is attentive engaged and a heart that is soft and responsive. Bless us now as we study. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Tonight's message, the bad breath of the beast. I'm going to need, I think, a little bit extra time tonight to be able to explain this topic in detail. And so I hope you won't mind if we go a little bit past 8.30. We promise we're not going to charge you extra. But tonight we're going to deal with the issue of tongues. And what the Bible says about the gift of tongues. And we're going to see the difference between the true gift versus the counterfeit gift. And I've entitled this message, The Bad Breath of the Beast. As we've learned in this seminar, in the book of Revelation, we find a strong warning against worshiping the beast and the image of the beast. We find that in Revelation 14, verse 9 through 11, the strongest warning of all of Scripture, God reserves for the mark of the beast, the worshiping of the beast, and the image of the beast. We already dealt with that on previous nights, so we're not going to read it or take the time to go into that in detail. But the Bible tells us that all those who are deceived by the beast and his image are going to be lost. It's a message that reveals truth, but at the same time, it exposes error and falsehood. What exactly is this beast, this Antichrist beast system? Well, We learned on previous nights that the beast is a church that uses the arm of the state to enforce false worship. A beast in prophecy represents a kingdom, but this is a church-state kingdom, a religious and political power united together, a church that uses the military arm of the state to enforce false worship. And we learned that this was the church-state system, the Roman church-state system, that exercised authority over all the world for exactly 1,260 years, known in history as the Dark Ages. Now, the Bible tells us in Revelation 13 and verse 3 that it would receive a deadly wound. In other words, its power would be stripped from it. It says here, And I saw one of its heads as it had been wounded to death, and his deadly wound was what? healed. And what happens when the wound is healed? And how much? All the world wondered after the beast. They marveled and followed the beast, is what another translation says. 
And so it's this Roman church-state system who reigned for 1260 years that received a deadly wound. Its power was stripped from it. But then the prophecy says that that wound would be healed. And when it is, all the world will wander after the beast. And this power that enforced false worship during the dark ages will do it again in the last days. We studied that before. But tonight I want to ask the question, how will the wound be healed? How will the papacy's wound be restored? How is it that all the world is going to end up following the beast? Well, the wound is healed by these words. Revelation 13, verse 15, excuse me, verse 14 and 15. The Bible says, And he deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of what? Those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make a what to the beast? An image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. So notice, friends, that the the wound is going to be healed by false miracles that Satan will perform. And by the means of those miracles, an image to the beast will be formed. An image to the Roman church state system. And then verse 15, it continues to say, And he had power to give, what is this word right here? To give life. And friends, in the Greek, it's the word breath. To give life or to give breath unto the image of the beast that the what? image of the beast should both, should both speak and cause that as many as would not do it, worship the image of the beast should be killed. And so here we find something interesting. That that beast that received a deadly wound whose wound is going to be healed, one of the ways it's going to be healed is that an image will be formed of the beast. And when this image is formed, the image is going to compel and cause the world to worship the beast. What exactly does this mean? Life is going to be breathed into the image. You don't give something life unless it is what? Oh, let me, let me rephrase. You don't give, something doesn't need life unless it is dead. Right, So this beast received a deadly wound. It died, but then it's going to be resurrected. The image is going to breathe life into the beast. Now, what is an image? Well, friends, if you look at the word image, it simply means a copy or a replica or a likeness to it. In other words, the Bible is prophesying that in the last days, there will be an image to the papacy. And the chief characteristic of the papacy or the Antichrist beast is that it's both a church and a state union. In other words, church and state is going to unite. And when it does, false worship is going to be enforced. And when church and state unites in our country and false worship enforced, it's then that the Bible prophesies that true worshipers will, will be persecuted by false worshipers just like what happened in the days of Cain and Abel. Two worshipers, both worshiping the same God. And yet Cain, the false worshiper, 
rose up and slew his brother Abel, which was the true worshiper. And that story is going to be repeated at the end of time. But what exactly is going to bring about this clashing crisis? What exactly is going to give life to the image of the beast? In other words, what will enable the beast to live, to act, to function, and to enforce false worship upon people? Oh, friends, the only way to wrap our minds around this prophecy tonight about the image being restored, the image of the beast, we have to go back to the Old Testament Scriptures because we learned on the first night out here that the book of Revelation is built upon the foundation of the Old Testament. Isn't that right? <coughs> and friends, when you go back to the Old Testament, you actually, I, let, me, let me rephrase that. When the book of Revelation tells he will give life to the image, that expression, give life to the image, actually points us back to the book of Genesis. Because remember, friends, Satan always counterfeits what God does. Isn't that right? For every truth, there is a counterfeit. Satan is always counterfeiting that which God does. And so the giving life to the image of the beast, when Satan does that in the last days, to give life to the image of the beast, he's basically doing what God did to his image in the book of Genesis. I want you to notice in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, talking about when God created man, it says that God created man in his own what? Image. And what is an image? It's a likeness to. It's a replica. We were made in the beautiful image of God. Now question, how did God give life to his image? How did God give life to us? He breathed into us. Isn't that right? In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, the Bible says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the what? The breath of life, and man became a living soul. And so we find that God brought his image alive by breathing his breath into that image. And when mankind was alive, God saw a copy of himself, a replica, a likeness to himself. Not that man was immortal like God was, no. But rather, man had the character of God. The image wasn't alive until God breathed his life in the image. In other words, here's the point, friends. It is the breath of God that gives life. And if you're with me so far, would you please say amen? Now, that's what God did to his literal image mankind when he made us in the beginning. And Jesus does the exact same thing to his spiritual image, the New Testament church. Notice in John chapter 20, verse 21 and 22, we're laying the foundation for our study tonight, by the way. Peace be unto you, Jesus says, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. So Jesus is about to send out the disciples to preach the gospel in all the world. But before he does that, notice what he does. And when he said this, he, what? Breathed on them and said to them, receive the what? Holy Ghost. So what does the breath of God represent? It's the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. This was the New Testament church. And friends, do you remember what the church is, is represented as in prophecy? A woman. Can you say amen? And friends, this was the spiritual image of God. 
God breathed into his church, this body of believers, his own breath, and the image of God came alive, and those disciples were able to reflect the image of their maker to the people, not just by their preaching, but also by their living. They received the breath of God. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, that the Spirit gives what? Gives life. But next question, how does the Holy Spirit give us life? Notice what Jesus said in John 6, 63. We're just having a simple Bible study tonight. Scripture answers Scripture, and the Bible interprets the Bible. John 6, 63, Jesus said, it is the Spirit that does what? Now, that word quickens means to make alive. That's what God did to Adam and Eve. He quickened us. He made us alive by breathing into us. It is the Spirit, the breath that quickens. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are what? So how does the Spirit give life, friends? It's by bringing the Word of God into us. You see, the Holy Spirit leads us to understand the truths of God's Word. And that, what, that is what makes us alive spiritually. It's what enables us to reflect the glory of God. It makes us into the image of Christ. And by the way, that makes sense. Because both your breath and your words come from your what? Your mouth. Isn't that right? Both your breath and your words come from your mouth. The foundation of words is breath. If you, don't, if you can't breathe, you can't speak. Isn't that right? You ever had the wind knocked out of you? And you try to scream, you can't scream. You can't even say anything. You see, the foundation of words is breath. In the same way, the foundation of the Bible, the Word of God, is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God leads us to an understanding of truth. God created all things by His Word and by His breath. Those two things, we can say, go hand in hand. All things derive life from the Word or the breath of God. And so, too, the New Testament church the image of God, the spiritual image of God, they had power to live, power to move, power to act, power to preach, power to demonstrate. Why? Because they received the breath of God that was founded upon the Word of God, the spiritual Word of life. Here's the point, friends, that I I don't want you to ever forget. Spiritual life only comes by the spiritual Word of God. It is this experience that constitutes a true worshiper. You remember Jesus said the true worshipers will worship God in what two things? Spirit and truth. Both of these two two things cannot be separated. They go together for the true spirit, the true breath of God will lead us to an understanding of God's word of truth. In other words, spiritual life does not exist outside of the spiritual word. Thus, any spirituality, listen to my words very carefully, any spirituality that is not based upon the Word of God is a false or a counterfeit spirituality because the Holy Spirit always works in partnership with the Word of God. Thus, any spirit, quote-unquote, that contradicts the Word cannot be the Holy Spirit. It would be an unclean spirit. And friends, I want to submit to us tonight that this is the exact reason why the beast and his image doesn't have life. Because it is a religious system that has rejected the word and have received a counterfeit spirit. 
and a counterfeit truth. Without the Word of God, we don't have real life. And so how will Satan cause almost the whole world to wander after the beast? How will he get the whole world to follow a, a spiritually dead system? He's going to breathe life into that system. And notice how he does it. Notice what it says. Revelation 13, 15, it says, And he had power to give what? Life. And that word life in the Greek is the same word breath. He had power to give life or breath unto the what? Image of the beast. You see, Satan is basically copying what God did. He's counterfeiting what the Lord did. The Lord breathed his spirit, his breath into us, and we became the image of God. Satan has an image, the image of the beast, and the way in which he's going to cause the whole world to follow this spiritually dead system is that he's going to breathe his own breath, his own life, or his own spirit into this system. Now, friends, think about it. If the breath is the spirit then bad breath would be a demonic spirit. Are you with me? If the breath of God is the Holy Spirit, then bad breath would be an unclean spirit. And it is this demonic, unclean spirit that Satan is going to breathe upon the false religious systems of the day. And by this false breath, this false spirit, they're going to look alive. They're going to look like things are happening. There's going to be a lot of excitement taking place. They have a name that they're alive. But in reality, they're spiritually dead. You see, just a false spirit would bring a counterfeit revival, a counterfeit life. Just as Jesus began his church with good breath, the breath of his spirit, so too Satan would revive his churches with bad breath. And what does this mean? It's a false revival that is centered on man's words instead of God's words. They would have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And that's exactly what the churches of Babylon are like. I want you to notice in Revelation 18, verse 2, we talked about Babylon before. We're not going to take the time to explain that again. But notice it says, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. How many times? Why twice? Because the mother as well as the daughters have fallen. The mother church, Catholicism, and the daughter churches, apostate Protestantism, is fallen, is fallen and has become the habitations of devils and the hold of every what kind of spirit? Foul spirit. We call that bad breath. The bad breath of Babylon and the bad breath of the beasts. This, my friends, is symbolic language. But this symbolic language of worshiping the image and the confusing counterfeits of Babylon this is also another echo from the Old Testament Scriptures. It's actually pointing us back to the book of Daniel in ancient Babylon. Now, let me review. Remember, ancient Babylon in the Old Testament was a type or a symbol or representation of what mystical end-time Babylon would do in the last days. And you remember the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he made an image. Do you remember that? And the image was completely of gold. What did the gold represent in the image? Represented Babylon. You remember we studied that? 
But when God gave the vision, only the head was of gold. But, but the king, instead of just making the head of gold, he made the whole thing of gold. Here the king makes an image of a man. The whole thing is of gold. What does that image represent? It's an image of himself. It's an image of his kingdom called Babylon. And what is the other symbol that God uses in prophecy to depict kingdoms? Beasts. So friends, follow me. This image of a man is also an image of, a, of the beast. It's an image of Babylon. So ancient Babylon makes this image and they set it up in the plains of Dura and they call the whole world to come and do what? Worship the image. It's, the, it's an image of a man, but it's also the image of a beast, of the kingdom of Babylon. And, and so this story in the Old Testament is basically the foundational story that helps us to understand the book of Revelation. Because what Babylon does in Revelation is the same thing that ancient Babylon did back then, setting up an image of themselves and calling the whole world to break God's law in worshiping that image. Are you with me, yes or no? <clears throat> now the next question is this, what ignited the worship of the image of the beast? In other words, how was the king successful in causing almost the whole world to worship this dead image? this dead image. Notice what he did, friends. Very interesting. Daniel 3, verse 4 to 6, write it down. The Bible says, Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time that you hear the what? The sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and the symphony with all kinds of music. Hmm. You shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whosoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Interesting, friends. Here we find ancient Babylon makes an image to themselves. They call the whole world to bow down and worship. But what did they use to help the people bow down and worship this dead image? They used music. At the sound of the music. In other words, this false manufactured worship involved Babylonian music. Now, friends, when you think about music, music is a gift from God. Can you say amen? But for every truth, there's a counterfeit. Music is a universal language. Isn't that right? It breaks down barriers for good as well as for evil. And so to unite the whole world universally, the king used Babylonian music to cause people to worship a dead image. Why? Because that Babylonian music made it alive. Friends, do we see this happening in many churches of the world today? Do we see the music styles of the world coming into churches today, taking the place of the Word of God? And it looks like there's a lot of life. There's a lot of charisma, a lot of excitement, a lot of movement. Excitement and demonstration, friends, does not equal life. Just because there's movement doesn't mean there's life. 
But friends, this is how the devil makes false churches look alive. He replaces the word of God, which is the only where, the place where we get life, by a false manifestation of a counterfeit spirit. And friends, because the truth of God's word is set aside, manufactured emotionalism, calculate, calculated to prepare people to receive the mark of the beast, takes the place of it. There's dramas, there's skits, there's dances, and all kinds of music, but to replace the teachings of God's Word. And friends, what we're seeing in many churches today, not all, but many of them, is that the lack of truth that is proclaimed in these places is compensated with feel-good services. But friends, this is not true spirituality or genuine Christianity. Now, I believe that many people who perhaps are part of this are sincerely worshiping God. Can you say amen? They're sincere, friends, and God knows the heart. And so we're not standing in judgment upon anyone's personal experience with the Lord. God has His people in every church. You heard me say that night after night. But friends, the fruit of such revivals, the fruit of such religious services shows that individuals are being conditioned to follow their feelings and emotions instead of faith in the thus saith the Lord and in it is written. Many people go to church to get a spiritual high, to get their praise on, and to, to get a religious quick fix. And yet when they leave the church, they don't know anything. They didn't learn anything from that service. It's interesting, friends. We're not judging individuals. We don't know the, the root, but Jesus says you shall know them by the fruits. Many people are being conditioned to follow feelings. Instead of the word, they're being moved by the music in false worship. And friends, when the final test is going to be brought, the mark of the beast, the national Sunday law, individuals are, are going to end up following the crowd, following the majority, following where it looks alive. And many people will accept the mark of the beast because they don't want to stand up and they don't want to stand out. They'll end up compromising with the crowd. And friends, I want to submit to us, and I'm going to prove it in just a moment, that this is how the whole world is going to wander after the beast because it will look alive with the charisma. This type of worship is patterned after the false worshipers of Baal during the days of Elijah. Do you remember that story in 1 Kings 17, 18, 19? How the false worshipers of Baal, uh, they were dancing and they were crying and they were shouting and they were falling and they were leaping on the altar and they were trying to gain something that they did not have. Because they had not the truth, they tried to compensate with being riled up in the Spirit. And friends, this sounds like many it sounds like the worship of many churches today. There's dancing and there's shouting and there's leaping and there's laughing. But where's the word? Where's the truth? You see, there was a lot of movement, a lot of excitement, and it looked alive. But friends, there was no fire that fell upon the altar. It was dead. It was cold. It was lifeless. And then you contrast that with the worship of Elijah, who, who worshiped God. He didn't shout. 
He didn't jump. He didn't dance. What did he do, friends? He repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And reverently, he knelt down at that altar and said a simple, humble, reverent prayer. There was not a lot of hype, but there was a lot of hope. Amen? And the fire of God fell on that worship. It was alive. It was reverent. Now, friends, this story teaches us that God does not speak through a bedlam of noise, but he speaks in a still, small voice. Amen? Here's the point, friends. When we see people acting like they have the Holy Spirit, now, again, we're not judging individuals. We're talking about movements. But yet their experience is not rooted in the truth of God's Word. When we see a lot of excitement, a lot of charisma, a lot of life, and yet that experience is not coming from an uh, an understanding and an experience with truth in God's Word, then we can know that the image of the beast is almost set up. Now, in light of all of the false manifestations of the Holy Spirit we're we're seeing in many churches today. How can we be protected from the bad breath of the beast? Here's how, friends. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15 and 16 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God. In other words, don't let the minister spoon feed you. Study for yourself, Amen. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And in that same sentence, notice, but shun profane and vain, what? Babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. So it's interesting, here the Apostle Paul is telling us that one of the ways we can be protected from the, from the bad breath of the beast and counterfeit revivals taking place in the last days is that we need to study the Word of God for ourselves to rightly divide, interpret, and understand God's Word of truth. And friends, in the same sentence, it says that we need to avoid or shun vain babblings. But friends, we're going to see tonight that many individuals, instead of studying the Word and shunning vain babblings, they are actually embracing vain babblings and shunning the study of the Word of God. Why does Paul mention these two things together? Because, friends, here's the point. The antithesis of God's Word of truth is man's vain babblings of error. Vain babblings, that's coming out of your mouth. So you have a contrast between the Word of God and the Word of man. And the antithesis to God's Word is man's vain babblings. This, my friends, is another way that Satan will gather the whole world into false worship. You see, another universal language that is uniting many denominations in our world today is this false tongues movement. That's what I mean when I'm referring to the bad breath of the beast. Listen, friends, music is a universal language that's uniting many churches. 
But another way that Satan is uniting many churches in this ecumenical apostasy is by another universal language, which is this false tongues movement. Now, this topic is one of the most confusing and misunderstood topics in the Christian world. But tonight, by God's grace, as we study for ourselves the word of truth, God's word, his light is going to dispel the darkness of the devil's deceptions. Can you say amen? Because, friends, really, all that matters is what does the Bible say? And that's what we're going to ask right now. What does the Bible really teach about the gift of tongues? Let me tell you, friends, I believe in the gift of tongues. I believe in it. But for every truth, there's a counterfeit. And so we don't want the counterfeit. We want the real deal. Amen? <clears throat> and so, and let me just say this. There are many sincere, wonderful people in every church. Amen? God sees all of our hearts. And if we're sincere, even though we might be doing something that's not biblical, if we're doing it, believing that we're pleasing God and desiring to please God, God sees the sincerity, friends. Amen? So there's no judgment upon individuals. But friends, we're going to see tonight that unfortunately, most churches are practicing the counterfeit gift of tongues instead of the true one. And so tonight, I want to share with you five truths concerning the gift of tongues. How many? And I hope you write them down. Here's the first one. We're going to walk through this together. Number one, the gift of tongues. Tongues are real languages that can be understood. Tongues are real languages that can be understood. Let me give you the biblical evidence. If you look up the word tongues in the original language of the Bible, it's either one of these two words. Glossolalia, and that's the word by which we get the English word glossary. And a glossary is basically an alphabetical list of technical terms. In other words, it's real words that can be understood. And the other word for tongues is the word dialectos. Can you see that? That's the word by which we get the English word dialect. And what is a dialect? It's the mother tongue in which you were born. So when you see the word tongues in the Bible, it simply denotes language. That's what it means, friends. That's what the word means. And it's not an incoherent, gibberish language. It's actually a language that you can understand. On the day of Pentecost, the gift of tongues was given to the early apostolic church. And I want you to notice what it says in Acts 2, verse 3 and 4. Then there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they began to speak, they began to what? Speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So to speak with other tongues was the gift of the Spirit. And they spoke with those tongues. Now, what does that mean? Jumping down to verse 6. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because, listen, because that every man, what? Heard them speak in his own language. So the Bible says they spoke with other tongues, and the people heard them speak in their own language. Why? Because the tongue is simply a language. It's a real language that can be understood. Second, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 10, the Bible says, there are so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. 
All languages that are real have significance. They have meaning. It's something that can be understood. And so, friends, listen carefully. Uh, Tongues are not incoherent, irrational babblings. There's not one example of that in the Bible. And this becomes clear when we understand why God gave the gift of tongues. Notice, He only gave it for one purpose. How many purposes? One purpose. And this is our second truth about the gift of tongues. Number two, the only reason the gift of tongues was given was to communicate the gospel. That's the only reason why God gave the gift of tongues. It was to communicate the gospel of Christ. Now, why was this gift necessary to communicate the gospel? Because you remember, Christ told the disciples who were unlearned fishermen to preach the gospel in all the world. You remember that? The Great Commission? Go, therefore, teach all nations. How many nations? All nations. But here's the problem, friends. How could the disciples teach all nations when they did not know the languages of the nations? How would they communicate the gospel to them? How could they ever fulfill this commission? And there we see on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it was a golden opportunity to preach Christ to all the nations because on that day of Pentecost, there were over 15 people, uh, individuals from over 15 different places. You can read the list in Acts chapter 2. People from over 15 different places were there at Jerusalem, at the temple. And so there were multitudes of languages right there. And Jesus had just resurrected. It's a golden opportunity to preach the gospel. But how could the disciples preach it to these different individuals when they did not know the languages? Aha, God gave the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues to break down the language barrier. They had the ability to speak in other languages that they had not previously known. And notice how the people responded. Verse 7 and 8. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which, what? Speak Galileans. And how here we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born. In other words, if you notice on the day of Pentecost, these individuals who were there at the day of Pentecost, they heard the gospel in their own language. They were not hearing incoherent, irrational gibberish. They heard the message of Christ in the language that they were born in. And they heard the disciples speaking those languages. Every time the gift was given, the gift of tongues, that is, no interpreter was needed because the people heard the language and they understood it. Every time the gift was given, no interpreter was needed. The hearer always understood what the speaker said. And these apostles were actually speaking in real languages. It's not called the gift, excuse me, it's called the gift of tongues, that is the gift of speaking. It's not called the gift of ears, the gift of hearing. In other words, it wasn't as if they were speaking in a language and all of a sudden they heard something different. The gift, the emphasis of the gift is on the tongue, not on the ear. The Holy Spirit fell on the 120 who spoke, not on the 3,000 who actually heard the message. And this brings us to our next fact about tongues, and this is where the confusion begins to dissipate. We have to understand that there's a big difference between the gift of tongues and natural tongues. Number three, the gift of tongues never needed an interpreter because the people always heard it in their own language. Whereas the natural tongue always needed an interpreter. Now, what's the difference between the two? 
Well, friends, the Bible addresses both these types of tongues, the gift of tongues and the natural tongues. And here's the essential difference. I want you to notice. The gift of tongues is the ability to speak another language understood by the who? Hearer, but not previously known by the speaker. Let me give you an example of this. If I started speaking Japanese right now, I don't know Japanese. And because I don't know it, if, if all of a sudden the Lord saw it fit to, to allow me to speak in Japanese because there's some people here that only understood Japanese, if I started speaking in Japanese, that would be the gift of tongues. The hearer would hear it in their own language. That's the gift. The speaker doesn't know it, but the hearer understands it. Now, natural tongues is different. Natural or cultural tongues is basically a learned ability a what kind of ability? A learned ability to speak another language known and understood by the speaker, but not the hearer. How many of you know more than one language? <clears throat> so that does not mean, if you know more than one language, it doesn't mean that you have the gift of tongues. Because most likely you learn that language. You're raised bilingual, perhaps. And you understand that language. But if you're speaking to someone that doesn't, that, the hearer does not understand it. And so these are the two types of tongues mentioned in the Bible. And many people get confused on this subject because they don't know the difference between the gift and the natural tongue that we can actually learn to speak. And then there's a third type of tongue that, that, that is not found in the Bible, but is actually found in many churches today. And that is the incoherent, unintelligent gibberish not understood neither by the speaker, not understood by the hearer, and not even understood by God himself because it is not a real language. This, my friends, is the counterfeit. It is the false gift of tongues that's not found in the Bible. And I know what you're thinking. You're, you're thinking about some verses, and don't worry, we're going to get to those verses and study them contextually tonight to see what it really means. You see, the gift of tongues... And the natural tongues is what the Bible talks about. <clears throat> but people argue that the gift given on the day of Pentecost, the gift of tongues, is different from the private angelic prayer language being practiced in many churches today. And so now we want to ask the question, what about speaking in the tongues of angels? Many people who claim to speak in tongues say it's my own private prayer language. You know, I don't understand what I'm saying, but God does, and it's my prayer language. Well, does the Bible really support that? What about when it says the tongues of angels? Well, that expression comes from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And so, if you write this scripture down, did Paul pray in, the priv in a private angelic prayer language? 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 2, the apostle said, Though I speak with the tongue of men and, ang and of angels... And have not love, I am become a what? A sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Notice, friends, he said, though. He did not say that I do speak in the tongues of men and angels. He said, though I speak in the tongues of men and angels. In other words, in this passage, Paul is using hyperbole. It's an exaggerated statement he's making to drive home a point not meant to be taken literal. And we know that for sure because notice what he said in the next verses. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand how much mysteries? 
all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. Question. Did Paul understand all mysteries, all knowledge, and all faith? No, friends. Again, the word though shows very clearly that he's using hyperbole, an exaggerated statement to make a point. And we know for sure that Paul did not know all mysteries because in verse 9 he said, for we know in part, not in all, and we prophesy in part. So when Paul said, though I speak in the tongue of men and angels, he was not saying that he did. The basic point that Paul is making here is that if it were possible to speak heavenly messages, if I had the ability to speak so eloquently like the angels, and I did not have love when I was speaking, it would be meaningless. That's the point of the passage. Are you with me, yes or no? <clears throat> you see, friends, many times we, we come to conclusions in the Bible based upon a surface reading of the Scriptures. Most people have never studied it for themselves, and they've only believed what misinformed ministers have said. And that's the reason why we must study carefully and contextually and exegetically to know what truth is. And friends, remember, personal experience doesn't take precedent over the Word of God. Just because I have an experience doesn't make it real or true. The Word of God takes precedence over every personal experience. In other words, every experience must be tested by the Word of God. Can you say amen? But then there's another verse that people try to read to justify an angelic prayer language when they're praying and they don't know what they're saying. And it's found in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. There's only these two verses that people use to try to support an angelic prayer language. Romans 8, 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with what? Groanings which cannot be uttered. And, and friends, a surface reading of this passage causes some people to think that, 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 that the groanings is this incoherent, unintelligent gibberish. And people are calling it an angelic prayer language. But friends, what we need to do with this passage is we need to ask the question, what does the word groanings mean according to the Bible? Well, first of all, it can't be something audible because it says we cannot utter it. So it's not something that's audible. But normally when we think of groanings, we, in, we think of incoherent sounds that we're making. Isn't that right? When you think of a groan, it sounds coming out of your mouth that, 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 that there's no meaning to it. But we can't interpret the Bible according to our own definition. You see, what exactly are groanings? If you were to look up this word in the original Greek language of the Bible, it's the word sten... Oh, man, I said this earlier. Stenagmos. Stenagmos, Sten stenagmos. Can you say that with me? Stenagmos. And that's the word by which we get the word sighing. And the definition of it is this, to feel a deep yearning for something or someone or something lost, unattainable, or distant. What is groanings? 
It's basically a yearning for something that is lost, something that is distant, or something that is unattainable. And I want us to notice how the Bible uses this word groaning because through biblical usage of the word, we can see what the word really means. Sighing is a longing of heart. The Bible says in Acts 7.34 that Israel groaned to come out of Egypt. Does that mean that they were making incoherent sounds with their mouth? When it says that they groaned to come out of Egypt, that, that simply means that they had a longing to, 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 to come out of slavery. Can you say amen? It also says that the righteous groaned to leave this world, Romans 8.23. Does that mean we're, we're, we're making literal sounds? No, it simply means that we have a longing to go to heaven. Amen? And then in Mark chapter 7, verse 34, I hope you're writing these scriptures down. Jesus groaned at the muteness of the man. He saw a man that was mute, and he had compassion, and the Bible says he groaned. Does that mean that Jesus started, uh, incoherent sounds started coming out of his mouth when he saw that? No. It simply means he had a longing for this man to be whole. So groanings, friends, is not unintelligent sounds, but it's a longing for something more. And I like how the Amplified Bible renders this passage. This is a perfect translation of, of, of this verse from the original manuscripts, from the original Greek manuscripts. Romans 8, 26. Here's what the verse means, friends. So too the Holy Spirit comes to our aid and bears us up in our weakness. For we do not know what prayer to offer nor how to offer it worthily as we ought. But the Spirit Himself goes to meet our supplication and pleads in our behalf with unspeakable yearnings and groanings too deep for utterance. Have you ever experienced that in your life? You go to your knees, and you don't have the right words to express how you feel. You have a longing in your heart. You have a burden on, on your shoulders, and, and you don't know how to express it to God. Well, friends, I'm thankful that in those moments, the Holy Spirit knows exactly what we're going through, and He not only uh, uh, understands what's on our heart, but He actually takes those prayers, and He prays through us. <clears throat> what does it mean? The Holy Spirit moves us to pray, teaches us what to say in prayer, and even prays through us and expresses the longings, the groanings of our heart. And so uh, groanings are not actual sounds uttered by us, but it's heart longings too deep to be fully expressed with words. And in other words, our need and our longings speak louder than our words. Can you say amen? Nowhere in the Bible do we find an incoherent prayer language ever used, friends. Not one example. When you look at the angels, whenever they communicated, they always communicated in languages that the human race could understand, a real legitimate language. In other words, an angelic out-of-this-world prayer language is not found in the Bible. Prayer, friends, is always done in an understandable language, and if that's clear, would you please say amen? And so we see clearly, friends, that the gift of tongues was given for one purpose. It wasn't a private prayer language but rather it was given to communicate the gospel intelligently to unbelievers in a language that they can understand. In fact, notice in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 22, the Bible says, Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that what? Believe not. It's not for a believer. It's not some private prayer language for the believer. It's for those who do not believe. Why? So that they can hear the gospel in a language they can understand and as a result become a believer. That they might hear 
and understand. And yet, unfortunately, many believers, quote-unquote, ask for the gift of tongues as a sign or the evidence of the Holy Spirit, which leads us, leads us to our next question, and that is this. Is the manifestation of tongues the evidence of the Holy Spirit? Is the manifestation of tongues the evidence of Holy, the Holy Spirit? Many Christians say yes, and unfortunately, and this belief has caused people to have a superior spiritual complex. Caused people to think that, oh, I speak in tongues and I have the Holy Spirit, and all those who don't speak in tongues, they don't have the Holy Spirit, and they're second-rate Christians. It's caused many people to become comfortable in Christian complacency, thinking that if I can speak this unintelligent gibberish, that somehow the Spirit of God is with me, and therefore I don't have to study the Bible as I ought to. I don't have to keep God's commandments because God is already with me. It leads people to complacency. And so what is the truth about this? Well, Paul asked a rhetorical question to the church at Corinth. I want you to notice. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 28 through 30. The Bible says, God has set how much? Some in the church. First apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then the gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. So the Bible says that God has set some in the church having the, these different gifts. And so it doesn't say all, it says some. And then in the next verse, he asked the question, are all apostles, what's the obvious answer to that question? Yes or no? The obvious answer is no. Why? Because he just said some. Are you with me? So these are rhetorical questions. The answer is obvious, it's no. Are all apostles? No, of course not. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Have all the gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? Yes. That's what many people will say. If you truly have the Spirit, you'll speak in tongues. But if it's no, 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 that one is no as well. Do all interpret? The obvious answer is no. Some have these gifts, not all. And if only some have these gifts, that shows us that the gift of tongues, as well as the rest of them, cannot be the evidence of the Holy Spirit because only some have, have them. You see, friends, the Holy Spirit determines who receives what gifts. And a gift by nature cannot be earned and it cannot be learned. It can only be received. And friends, think about it. If tongues could be learned by practice, then it would cease to be a gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? If tongues could be learned by practice, then it's no longer a gift. It is the work of man. It's like saying, I can learn how to work miracles by practicing. Of course not. You see, it's a gift. A gift by nature cannot be earned and it cannot be learned. It can only be received. And friends, you'll find it interesting that in the Bible, every time there is a baptism or infilling of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't say that there are, they spoke in tongues at the same time. In fact, the baptism or filling of the Holy Spirit is mentioned only 12 times in the book of Acts. Only three of the 12 times was it followed by speaking in tongues. How many times? Only three, which shows that the inf in, it couldn't be the evidence of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit of God was manifested all 12 times, but only three times did they actually speak in tongues. However, you'll notice that every time they were filled with the Holy Spirit, it was always followed up by proclaiming the gospel message to others. Every time 
they spoke with tongues those three times, it was always to communicate the gospel and the wonders and the work of God. Here are the three times, and I hope you write them down. The first time was on the day of Pentecost, and we already established that God gave that gift in order to communicate the gospel to the people that were there. And the people heard them speak in a language that they could, under, they, that they could understand. The second time in the book of Acts is at Cornelius' household in Acts chapter 10. The Bible says they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and when the Gentiles were filled, they began to speak in tongues. We're going to look at that in just a moment. The third time is at Ephesus in Acts 19. The Bible says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. They spoke in tongues and did what? Now, friends, do you remember what we studied the other night about prophesying? What is, what, what is another word for prophesying? Preaching. In other words, they were filled with the Spirit, they spoke in tongues, and with those tongues, with those languages, they were preaching. In other words, the purpose was to communicate the gospel with others. Now, what about Acts chapter 10? I want to take a closer look at Acts chapter 10 because this one is, is important for us to look at tonight. How was the gift manifested to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10? The Holy Spirit fell upon the household of Cornelius. Cornelius was an Italian. In other words, he was a Roman. And back in these times, a Roman household would have servants from various different countries anywhere around the world because Rome conquered all the different countries and territories of the world. And so in this Roman household, Cornelius had servants, servants that had to have been from many different parts of the world. Thus, in this one household was represented many different tongues or many different languages. And so what happened was this. God was wanting the Gentiles to hear the gospel. So he filled them with the Holy Spirit, and then they began to speak with tongues. For what purpose? To communicate the gospel in languages people can understand. In Acts 10, 46 and 47, for they heard them speak with tongues and what? Magnified God. They answered Peter, excuse me, then answered Peter, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized? which have received the Holy Ghost, how? As well as we. So, friends, I want you to notice this verse very carefully. How was the gift of tongues manifested to these Gentile believers? Just as it was with the apostles on the day of Pentecost. They said they were filled as well as we. In other words, just like we were filled on the day of Pentecost, and we preached in languages that we previously did not know, and the people that heard us heard and understood that language. This is how the infilling of the Spirit and the gift of tongues was manifested to the Gentiles as well. In other words, the point is this. It wasn't an incoherent, out-of-this-world language that no one understood. It was a real, legitimate language, just as it was on the day of Pentecost. And that has to be true, because how would Peter know that they were magnifying God? if he did not understand what they were saying. He had to have been understanding what these Gentiles were saying in order to know that they were truly magnifying God. Does that make sense? In other words, whatever happened here in Acts 10, as the Gentiles spoke in tongues, they were speaking in languages that they previously did not know, but the hearers understood it clearly and intelligibly. That's why Peter knew that they were magnifying God and that they should be baptized because their experience was the same as his experience was on the day of Pentecost. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? 
And so we find something interesting, friends. Three, every single time tongues followed the infilling of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, it was always for the purpose of communicating the gospel in a language that others could understand. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? Now, friends, God did this in Acts chapter 10 for two main reasons. Number one, so that the Gentile servants could understand the gospel. Remember this Italian Roman household, servants from many different countries. God broke that language barrier so that they could understand and believe. But also the second reason was for the sake of the unbelieving companions of Peter. <coughs> Remember the Jews were not ready to accept Gentile believers into the faith. They still maintain a prejudiced Jewish mindset towards Gentiles. Thus God gave this special gift to the Gentiles to show the Jews that the Gentiles were accepted as they heard them magnify the same God. In other words, the point is that the gift was given to communicate. Now, I want you to notice as we continue. Many people wonder this. <clears throat> well, why doesn't God give the, give the gift of tongues every time he gives the Holy Spirit? The gift of tongues was not given every time because it was not needed every time. You see, only when it was needed to break down the language barrier did God give the gift of tongues. In a place where thousands of languages were, were located in a very small area, God would give the gift. In, in a time when there was a, a large lack of cross-communication, did God give the gift. In a time when there was no TV, radio, internet, satellite, and language schools. And friends, the reason why the gift of tongues, that is the true gift, is seldom given today is because we now live in a world that is fully connected. Isn't that right? where there are multiple means of communication, multiple media outlets, internet and TV and radio. We have translators and transcribers. We have Rosetta Stone. We can, I, have, I have an app on my phone. I, all I have to do is type in, and I know the exact translation of that right on my app, on my smartphone. And so because of what's, what we have available to us today, this greatly reduces the need for this particular gift of tongues. God does not do for us what we are more than capable of doing ourselves, in other words. And no wonder why Jesus said in the book of John, chapter 14, and verse 12, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, will he do also. And what kind of works? Greater works than these will he do because I go to my Father. So here Christ said to the disciples that what I do, you're going to do as well, but even greater. Now, what does that mean? Not greater in importance, but greater in impact. That's what it means. In other words, when Christ worked in this world, his work was powerful. But it was, it was, it was only over a relatively small area of the world. But through the missionary labors of the disciples, they would do even greater work with a greater impact because of the abilities we have of communication together of the means of understanding one another. You see, friends, God still gives the gift of tongues today. He does it not in a setting like this when we all speak English. We can all understand each other. Amen? He doesn't do it most in, in settings in the, in the first world countries because we have translators, we have the internet, we have things that can help us understand what other languages mean. But in the deep jungles of secluded places of the world where missionaries go, where there's no means of communication, we do still find stories of God bestowing the gift of tongues on individuals 
in order to speak in a language that they previously did not know, and the people are able to hear it and understand it and believe the gospel. And so there are still missionaries that receive it. But once again, God does not do for us what we are capable of doing for ourselves. And so in compar- today, in comparison to the first century, the gift of tongues is seldom needed anymore. And this is probably the reason why the Apostle Paul used two different Greek words when he described the ceasing or the ending of tongues. I want you to notice this, very interesting. In 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 8, the Bible says, Love never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they will what? Fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. And whether there is knowledge, it will (coughs) vanish away. So notice, friends, love never fails. Can you say amen? But then prophecies, tongues, and knowledge will come to an end one day. And Paul uses the word fail, cease, and vanish. But friends, I want you to consider that when he dealt with prophecies failing, he used the Greek word katargeo. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but you see it there on the screen. And when he used the word, uh, the word vanish, when it dealt with knowledge vanishing, he used the same Greek word. Same Greek word when it came to prophecies and knowledge. But when he used the word cease in dealing with tongues, he used a different Greek word. He used the word pao. Can you say that? And friends, Paul could have used the same word in describing how all these three things would cease or finish. But he used this specific word in dealing with tongues. And friends, let me explain the essential difference of the word. You see, the word fail or vanish, katarego, it means to destroy, to do away with, or to abolish. But the word cease, pao, it means to leave, to refrain, or to no longer stir. Let me illustrate it like this. This word, katarego, is like the snuffing out of a candle. You are actively putting it out. But the word powell for cease, you're not going to put out the candle, but it will die out of its own accord when it's no longer needed. Does that make sense? In other words, when it comes to prophecies, it's going to be finished when the prophecies are fulfilled in an active sense. When it comes to knowledge, it's going to vanish. It's going to pass. But when it it comes with tongues, it's going to die out of its own accord when it's no longer necessary. And friends, when you, due to the nature and purpose of the gift, it cannot be the evidence of the Holy Spirit. And here's another reason. I want you to notice this chart on the screen, very interesting. Here we find a chart with different religions on the top column, Kundalini Yoga, and other pagan heathenistic religions. And then the last one is charismatic Christian churches. And then on the side column are different manifestations that are seen in these different types of religions. Manifestations such as being slain in the spirit, uncontrollable laughter, physical jerking, animal sounds, spontaneous movements, and incoherent tongues. Not the real tongues, the languages, but this babbling or this gibberish. And if you notice, All of these manifestations are seen in these different pagan and heathen religions, not just in charismatic churches of today, but they're even seen in religions that worship demons, friends. 
And so to say that this is the evidence of the Holy Spirit is to also say that those who are worshiping demons are being filled with the Holy Spirit. Are we ready to say that? They're being filled with the Spirit, friends, but it's not a Holy Spirit, which shows that the gift of incoherent tongues and the rest of these manifestations is not the true evidence of the Holy Spirit. In fact, you'll notice something very interesting. Where did the, false, where did the practice of false tongues actually come from? This practice of speaking incoherent, irrational, vain babblings actually dates back to 400 B.C., over 400 years before the day of Pentecost. If you study history, it dates back to the Oracle of Delphi. In Greece, there was a, there, there was a temple, a mystical shrine there. You can see the ancient ruins if you're to go to Greece today. But there was a mystical shrine dedicated to the Greek god Apollo there in Delphi. And at that shrine, there was an oracle, a woman who claimed to receive messages from the gods. And here's what she would do. She would sit on a little tripod that was, under, that, 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 that was just over a, a little cavern in the earth. And someone would come up to her, the oracle, and would ask a question. Then she would inhale the vapors that came from the cavern that she was sitting over, and those fumes coming from the cavern would intoxicate her. And then she would begin to babble irrational gibberish. And then the temple priest was there, and he would write down an interpretation of that oracle, and then give that interpretation to the questioner in exchange for an offering. Does that sound familiar? Friends, it's very possible that this well-known pagan practice, irrational gibberish, and then someone interpreting that as if they could understand it for an offering, it's very possible that this well-known pagan ritual could have easily infiltrated the church at Corinth, causing the confusion that the Apostle Paul was writing about. It has definitely infiltrated many churches of our world today. And so, this cannot be the evidence of the Holy Spirit. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? So then, what is the true evidence of the Holy Spirit? Here it is. Write it down. In Matthew 7, verse 20, Jesus said, Wherefore, by what shall you know them? By their fruits you shall know them. Not by tongues, not by their gifts, but by their fruits. And friends, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Another word for fruit is evidence. How do you know a mango tree is a mango tree? Because it bears the mangoes. Amen? It has the fruit. How do you know a Christian has the Spirit? Because it will bear the fruit of the Spirit. And what is that? It's a changed life, friends. It's not jumping up and down and shouting and praying and casting out devils and, and these things. No, it's a change and transform life. This is the true evidence of the Holy Spirit. And here's the reason why. It's logical. Satan can create an ecstatic emotional experience, but he cannot and will not change your heart. Does that make sense? The devil can speak in tongues. The devil can perform miracles. The devil can, can inflict someone with disease and then remove the disease, and it looked like a healing he can do it. Now, God does it as well, amen? But so can Satan. But that which Satan will not do is change your heart. He's not going to make you loving. 
He's not going to give you true, genuine joy. He's not going to give you temperance. Only the Holy Spirit will do that. Thus, the true evidence of the Spirit is a changed and transformed life. How many of you have experienced a change in your life? Well, that is evidence you have the Holy Spirit. Now, you may not feel a burning in your bosom. You may not be jumping up and down and screaming. You may not be casting out demons. You may be sitting there completely calm but you have the Holy Spirit if you've been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? Amen. Satan can counterfeit. He can create an ecstatic emotional experience, but he's not going to change your heart. You see, friends, there's a big difference between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Before Christ gives us the gifts, he first will give us the fruit because having the fruit of the Spirit, a changed life, enables God to trust us with the gifts of the Spirit to share the message and that genuine experience with others. And so truth number four of the gift of tongues is that tongues were a gift of the Spirit, but it was not the evidence of the Holy Spirit. It was a gift, but it wasn't the evidence. Now, friends, where does all the confusion concerning this topic come from? Well, friends, it comes from a misunderstanding of one chapter in the Bible, basically. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now, friends, tonight you may not have an issue with this about tongues and whatnot. Maybe you already know the truth of this. But I can say with a great degree of certainty that you know someone that doesn't know it. And so don't just listen for yourself, but listen for the sake that, of, the, of the person that God wants to use you to share it with. Can you say amen? You see, the confusion about tongues comes from a misunderstanding of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Therefore, if we can understand this chapter clearly, the confusion would dispel. You see, the first letter of the Apostle Paul to the church of Corinth, in that book, in that letter, Paul was dealing with the different issues that the Corinthian church was dealing with. They had a lot of issues. And Paul was basically correcting all the different issues that they were facing. And a little background of the seed of Corinth will help us to understand the letter he wrote to the church. So listen carefully. The, the city of Corinth was a, was, was a city of numerous cultures and, mul- and multiple languages. <coughs> it was a little over 100 years old. And it was growing rapidly as merchants and tradesmen from all over the world saw opportunities for financial gain here in this city that was rapidly growing. It was five times larger than Athens, and it was the capital of the province. In fact, Corinth was the richest seaport and the largest city in ancient Greece during that time that the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the church. And this is the reason why the Apostle Paul chose Corinth as a base for his evangelism to the world. And in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul was addressing, listen, the issue was this. He was addressing the cultural language barriers that were in that church that was in this city with so many different people from all over the world with so many different languages. In fact, the whole book, 1 Corinthians, Paul is correcting the errors in the church. And then in the 14th chapter, Paul is correcting the errors that were being practiced during the church services in Corinth. It was not an exposition on how to do church, but it was correcting them from the wrong way they were doing church. Are you with me? 
And so we read 1 Corinthians 14 without the understanding of that background, and we think, wow, Paul, this is how you do church. But no, friends, Paul is correcting them from the wrong way of, of doing church. And so notice now as we go to 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 26. Here's a description of what the church services were like in Corinth. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for what? Edification. You see, what, what was happening here is this. The services became chaotic and irreverent. Everyone had something to say, and everyone wanted to participate in the service. In other words, when everyone came to church, everyone wanted to get up and say something, or sing something, or prophesy something, to the point where everyone wanted to talk and no one wanted to listen. <laughs> and so the church services at Corinth would last for hours, and no one would be edified. Why? Because everyone was talking and everyone was doing their own thing. And not only that, but wives... Would, would speak across the aisles to their husbands for an explanation of what was taking place. It was chaotic, friends. Can you imagine if, if, if we started shouting at each other at different parts of the room? And so this was not an example of how to conduct worship service, but Paul was correcting the errors. And Paul was basically asking, why are you doing it like this? The point is, you should not be doing it like this. Why? Because notice the, the, the end of the chapter in verse 40, Paul said, let all things be done how? Decently and in order. Why? Because God is a God of order. Worship must be decent and in order. God calls for reverence and respect in his house. Can you say amen? He's the, he's the king of kings, friends, the Lord of lords. If you approach the president, a man you come with reverence and respect. How much more the king of kings? But this is not how the Corinthians were. It was, they were so irreverent. And so Paul now gives clear-cut instructions concerning speaking different languages in the church service. And friends, I want you to notice now as we get to the nitty-gritty. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 27. We're almost done, by the way. Just allow me to, to, to uh, explain this chapter, and then we'll wrap it up. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 27. Here's what he wrote. If any man speak in un what? Unknown what? And what is a tongue? A language. Now, friends, notice the word unknown is in italics. It's also in italics in the Bible. Now, whenever you find a word in the Bible that's in italics, you know what that means? That means that specific word is not found in the original Greek or Hebrew manuscripts that the Bible is written. It is an added word by the translators to help us better understand what the Bible is saying or what the, what the original language is saying. Because you see, Greek and Hebrew, those languages are so much deeper in meaning than the English languages. So when the translators translated the, original, the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English, they added some words to help us get a, 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 a more of an understanding of what it's saying. And so whenever there is italics, you know that that word is added by translators. Are you with me? They did it for the sake of clarity. An unknown tongue. Let it be by how much? Two or at the most by three, and that by course or in order. In other words, not all at once, by course. And let one do what? <coughs> let one 
interpret. Now, friends, I want you to notice. Many people think that unknown tongue means the person speaking doesn't know what he's saying. That's how most people read this verse. Unknown tongue, in other words, the person that is speaking that language himself does not know what he's saying. And friends, this attempt to clarify the passage by adding this word has actually brought confusion that Satan has used to get people off track concerning this topic. And so in order to get us out of confusion, we need to ask this essential question, and don't lose me on this. Here's the question. When Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, is he speaking about the gift of tongues, or is he speaking about the natural tongues? Is he dealing with the gift of tongues, or is he dealing with natural tongues? Do you remember what the difference is? Let's review. The gift of tongues, what is that? The ability to speak in a language not previously known by the speaker, but understood by the hearer, right? That's the gift. You didn't learn the language. You miraculously, now you're speaking Japanese. You didn't know Japanese, but you're speaking it all of a sudden, and the people are hearing it. People who understand Japanese, they hear it, and they understand it. That's the gift. Not previously known by the speaker, but known and understood by the hearer, whereas natural tongues is just the opposite. Natural tongues is a language that is known and learned by the speaker, but not understood by the hearer. I wish I knew another language so I can illustrate it. But if I started, if, if I grew up, my wife is Tongan, she could do it. If my wife was here, and she got up and started speaking Tongan. That's not a gift because she grew up learning that language. Anyone know Tongan here? So you wouldn't understand it. Or maybe, maybe Brittany would. You wouldn't understand it. That's the natural tongue. So which one is Paul dealing with in 1 Corinthians 13 or 14? If we know that, aha, it all makes sense. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 is not talking about the gift of tongues at all. He's talking about natural tongues. Why? Because notice, he says that there must be an interpreter. The gift of tongues never needed an interpreter. Why? Because the people always understood what they heard. Whereas the natural tongue always needed an interpreter because the hearers did not understand that language. Are you with me? And so 1 Corinthians 14, friends, is not talking about the gift of tongues. It's talking about the natural tongues. And by the way, I've experienced this, what Paul is saying in my, in my travels. When I was in Africa, I had an interpreter or a translator. When I spoke in English, he interpreted that or translated that into Swahili so that the hundreds of people that came to our meetings understood the gospel in their own language. I didn't have the gift of tongues, nor did my translator have it. It was a natural tongue. He understood English as well as Swahili. Remember, God is not going to do for us what he's empowered us to do for ourselves. And friends, my, my wife's experience in Ethiopia illustrates what Paul said when he said, if anyone speak in a tongue, unknown tongue, let it, let it be two or three and let one interpret. You see, one time she, did a, she, was, she was actually the evangelist. She had her own meeting. She preached every night for two weeks in Ethiopia, out in the bush. 
and on a few nights, she had two interpreters. So she would speak in English, and then another man would interpret that in Amharic, and then the third interpreter would hear the Amharic, and then he would interpret that into another language called Sirmenia. And as a result, all the people present were blessed and edified because they understood the gospel in their own language. Can you say amen? Now, what if there was no interpreters to translate the message? Here's what the apostle says, verse 28. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep what? Silence in the church. And let him speak to who? Himself and to God. Friends, if there's no one to interpret what you're saying with the natural tongue, then Paul says, keep silent. Talk to yourself and to God. Why? Because you know what you're saying, and God knows what you're saying. Can you say amen? But what happened in Corinth, all these different people that spoke different languages, they thought it was a spiritual thing to just speak in their language, and, and everyone spoke, and it was just confusion. So Paul said, don't do that. If no one understands what you're saying, then speak to God yourself. The point is, the speaker understood what they were saying, and God understood what they were saying. With a real language, you and God always know what you're saying. God understands all real languages because He made all real languages. And then notice in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 14, the Bible says, for he that speaks in a what? <coughs> unknown tongue. Again, it's, it's, it's added, unknown tongue, speaks not to men but to who? God. For no man does what? So who doesn't understand the language? The speaker or the people? The people, friends. So when it says unknown tongue, it's not referring to the one that's talking. It's the referring to others. No man, no one else understands him. Howbeit in the spirit he speaks mysteries. Now it's easy to misread that, but here's what it means. This verse does not mean that what we are saying is a mystery to us. That's not what it's saying. It means that what we are saying is a mystery to the ones that are hearing us because they don't know the language that we're talking. Now, the Century English Version is a perfect translation of this passage. <coughs> Notice what it says. If you speak languages that who? Others don't know. God will understand what you are saying, though no one else will know what you mean. You will be talking about mysteries that only who understands? The Spirit understands. You understand it. The Spirit understands it, but no one else understands it because we're dealing with the natural tongue, not the gift of tongues. And then we continue. We're almost finished. If, if that's clear so far, would you please say amen? I'm trying to make it as clear as I can. I hope you're praying for me. So if there's no interpreter to translate, then the speaker must keep silent or let his words be few. Notice in verses 18 and 19. The apostle says, I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than you all. You see, the apostle Paul, he knew multiple languages. He was a very educated individual. Yet in the church, I had rather speak, how many words? Five words with my understanding, that by my voice I might, what? Teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. What does this mean? Here's what it means. Paul is saying it's better to say a little that people can understand than to say a lot that no one can understand. I'd rather speak five words that people can understand. Once again, 
the person speaking can understand it, God can understand it, and those five words, people can understand it. We must speak the language that all can understand so that all can be edified and blessed. Are you with me, yes or no? That's what it's saying, friends. Now, here's the verse that many people trip over. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 14. For if I pray in a what? Once again, it's added for the sake of clarity, but sometimes it brings more confusion than clarity. When I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is what? Unfruitful. And there, there's the main verse that people say, there you have it. You're praying. It's a prayer language. You don't know what you're saying, but God knows. But is that what Paul is really saying? Does this verse mean that we don't understand what we're praying? Now, friends, listen carefully. If we isolate this verse by itself, it seems to say that we're praying and we don't understand what we're saying. But when we read it in the context, the what, everyone? It makes, we under, we can, it's then that we can truly understand what Paul is saying. That's why we can never take a verse out of its context, friend. You take a verse out of its context, you can make up your own crazy beliefs. We must read it contextually. And so here's the question we're going to ask, and this is how we, we unlock what this verse is saying. To whom is the understanding unfruitful? It seems like our understanding of what we're saying, we don't understand it. But to whom is the understanding unfruitful? All you have to do is read the next verses. Because in verse 16 and 17, it tells us who is not benefited by what we're saying. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks? Since who? He does not understand what you say. So who doesn't understand? the person that's hearing you speak. You're understanding what you're saying. What you say is bearing fruit in your own life, but the person that's listening to you, it doesn't bear fruit for him because he does not understand what you say because he doesn't understand the language. That's why it needs an interpreter. For you indeed give thanks well, but the what? The other is not edified. In other words, here's the point, friends. In 1 Corinthians 14, the speaker always understands what he's saying because he's speaking in a real language. And in this case, it is the natural tongue, the tongue that he was born in or that he learned growing up. This is not dealing with the gift of tongues, but the natural tongue. And so why did Paul, why was Paul so concerned with proper worship? Because here's what he said, 1 Corinthians 14, now 33. For God is not the author of what? Confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. God is not the author of confusion. And friends, this unintelligent, incoherent babbling is confusion. It's not found in the Bible. It is the counterfeit gift. But God is a God of order and a God of peace. Can you say amen? It's interesting. If you're to look at the Chinese characters of the word confusion, it's basically these two characters put together that make up the word confusion in Chinese. Would you like to guess what these characters are by themselves? It means tongue and mystery. So you put tongue and mystery together, that is confusion. 
and God is not the author of confusion. Can you say amen? And so let me review what we, studied, what we learned tonight, and we'll close. Uh, five truths, and that's the fifth truth, by the way. I'll get to that. Let's review. Number one, we learned tonight that tongues are what? Real languages that can be understood. English is a tongue. Japanese is a tongue. Spanish is a tongue. Portuguese is a tongue. Real language, not this out-of-this-world incoherent gibberish that people make up. No, it's a real language. That's what the word tongue is in the Bible. Number two, we've also learned that the only reason the gift of tongues was given was to what? communicate. It wasn't a private prayer language. It wasn't a means of how uh, an individual measured their spiritual life. Every time it was given, it was for the purpose of communicating so that others could understand the gospel. The third truth about the gift of tongues is that the gift of tongues never needed what? An interpreter or an interpretation. Why? Because the people always heard it in their own language. In contrast, natural tongues, what? Always needed an interpreter because the people did not understand. And so for the gift, the speaker didn't know what he was saying. It was a gift, but the hearers understood it. Natural tongue, the speaker knew exactly what he was saying. It's something that he learned or he grew up knowing, but the people did not understand it. Therefore, they needed an interpreter. And then number four, we've learned that, the, that tongues is not the evidence of the Holy Spirit is simply one of the many gifts of the Spirit, and not everyone receives the same gift. The true evidence of the Holy Spirit is a change and transform life. And then finally, number five, God is not the author of confusion, but of, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And friends, if that's clear from God's Word tonight, please say amen. And if God is not the author of, the, of confusion, who is, friends? It's Babylon the bad breath of Babylon, and the bad breath of the beast. And so as we close tonight, as we see a counterfeit spirit sweeping across many churches today, remember, friends, people who are doing it, many of them are sincere. They think that they're praising God. And, and, and so we're not judging anyone's sincerity. God is the judge. He sees the heart. But as we look at the fruit and compare it with the teachings of the Bible, we see that it's not the genuine, it's the counterfeit. And therefore, we need to be able to share this with others so that people can know the truth and that the truth can make them free. God is calling us to stand firm like the three Hebrew boys did in the plains of Dura. When ancient Babylon made an image to worship and music to get people in the mood to worship, <coughs> these three young men were unmoved by the music and they were unmoved by the words of man. The threat of death did not faze them because they were moved by the Spirit of God to stand up against the crowd. They did not consider the consequences of such a stand. They were not afraid to stand up and stand out and speak up and speak out. And even though they were threatened to be thrown in the fire, they said to the king, we will not bow down. He said, our God is going to deliver us. They had faith that God would take care of them. Can you say amen? Is God going to deliver you? Absolutely. And that's beautiful, but you know what the most powerful part of this story is? The part they said next. They then said, but even if he does not deliver us, we will not bow down. In other words, throw us into the fire if you need to. It doesn't matter what happens. If God delivers us, 
delivers us, praise the Lord. If he chooses not to deliver us, if we perish in the fire, so be it. We're still not going to bow down to the image of the man, the image of the beast. They didn't stutter. They didn't stammer. Their words were clear, friends. And in these last days, as Satan is deceiving individuals by a false spirit, a false breath, how many of you want the true spirit and the true breath of God in your life? Is that your desire? If so, I invite you to bow your heads with me as we close with prayer tonight. <laughs> Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, for the clarity of your word. We thank you so much that we don't have to be confused by the counterfeits. We thank you for truth that is clear, simple, and transforming. <coughs> Father, tonight we've learned the message that perhaps for some is challenging. But Lord, we don't want to be led astray. We just want to know truth. And so help us as we go home tonight to study this further for ourselves. And make us ready, Lord, to give an answer to everyone that asks us our reason for the hope that is within us with meekness and fear. We thank you for hearing this prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.